Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the palm-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus, or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. So, welcome Mark. This has been my most looked forward to Herbcast. I always wanted to have this time with you. Um, Personally, I've been totally in awe of what you've done on the herbal world, on the other side of the world. Um, I've watched you from afar and got to know you, obviously, over the years. Um, We've shared things together. But this is the first time we've sat down with an audience and really shared your life. Um, Hmm. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for including me, brother. I really appreciate the, the offer and the opportunity. It's a long story, isn't it? I mean, I really, I actually don't know this. When, how did you come into herbs? I mean, what was, where, what, where was the kick point for you? Well, thanks. First of all, thank you for including me in your series of Herbcasts. I'm really grateful and honored to be part of this series of conversations that you have with various people in our herbal communities because it's so diverse. There's so many wonderful people. So many brilliant people, uphill stream, up uphill or upstream swimmers. Uh, getting my metaphors mixed up there. Um, so I'm honored and grateful to be part of this. Um, I'm beginning my 50th year in the herbal community. It was uh, 50 years ago almost that I started my first herb business called Sweetheart Herbs in Austin, Texas. As a wholesale distributor, and a sweetheart was spelled H-A-R-D-T because my initial partners for the first year, uh, last name was Steinhardt and Sweetser, so their first child's last name was Sweetheart, and it coined last name for the two parents. So people loved the name Sweetheart as it sounded, but it was spelled H-A-R-D-T in like German, kind of. And I wholesaled herbs for 12 years and got involved with the beginning of herb, the Herb Trade Association, which I was a founding board member and um, a th- its third president, and um, that was the first attempt in the U.S. to set up an industry conversation and organization to develop standards and communication and cooperation. So there wasn't there wasn't anything before then that you could remember. Not yet. There was the National Nutritional Foods Association. Right. It was the health food industry, now known as the Natural Products Association. And we used to go to their summer um, conventions. We were, and these were health food. It was all health, what you all call health food shops, health mm-hmm. food stores. Back then, there, was no, there were no herbals sold mainly in mass market drugstores or supermarkets, uh, except for some of the herbs that were at that time sold in over-the-counter medicines. Mm-hmm. Then that has changed over the years, but there's still some herbs that are approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for over-the-counter drug usage. But many of those were were like cleaved out over the years through their so-called over-the-counter drug review because they didn't meet the safety and efficacy requirements that were brought to these 
kind of grandmothered or grandfathered over-the-counter drug ingredients that had been around for 100 years or so. But backing up further than that, without getting into all that right away, I got into herbs, which is kind of how you opened the question, in 1968 when I was graduating from the University of Texas in Austin with a proposed degree in political science and philosophy. And that was 1968. It was the height of the Vietnam War buildup for the United States, and there was a lot of draft issues and a lot of anti-war concerns among many of us college students and others. And I was involved to some extent in anti-war mentality and activity. And uh, although I'm grateful for the service of my brothers, including my own brother, who served in Vietnam, but I was that was not something that I wanted to do for a number of reasons which we don't need to get into. And But as part of the anti-war movement in 1968, I became a vegetarian as an anti-war protest. And as part of my own internal um, process of realizing that not only did I not want to be conscripted into a situation where I might have to kill another human being for economic and or political reasons that the government determined, but I also don't want to pay somebody else to kill an animal so that I can continue my life on this planet. There should be some other way for me to be able to live without killing an animal or paying somebody else to do it. And so I started going to health food shops, health food stores, which back in those days were very different than they are now. They were mainly pill shops with foods for special dietary use for people that were uh, hypoglycemic or diabetic or people with high blood pressure, with low-sodium foods, etc. But there was a wall of herbal teas on the uh, in one of the sto- stores with all these different herbs, all these chamomile and peppermint and all the usual suspects and a bunch of others which I had no idea what they were, bone set, etc. And there was this literature in there uh, which was based on folklore, uh, Jethro Kloss's classic Back to Eden, John Lust, The Erd Book. And they were all folkloric. They weren't based on science because there was very little science being conducted or published at that time. And whatever was being done was not being disseminated, particularly here in the United States. And eventually that was something I wanted to address when I, later on, I got involved with the herb community and and the nonprofit world. So I just started studying herbs as a personal hobby, interest, avocation. I lived on a commune up in near Taos, New Mexico for a couple of years off the grid in the early 1970s. And that was also a very formative part of my life. I was in my middle 20s and um, living with information from the whole earth and resources from the whole earth catalog the whole yeah whole earth catalog was an amazing transformational disruptive i know it was for people who forget that there wasn't once an internet it was the uh, was the major resource we all use wasn't it uh yeah like 30 years before the internet or 25 years before you know the internet yeah. if you consider that the world wide web started like in 1998 or something like that and this was like 1970, 1969, 1970 for the first Whole Herb Catalog. Whole Earth, excuse me, Whole Earth Catalog. There was a Whole Herb Catalog somebody published yeah. too, but I meant the Whole Earth Catalog. <laughs> that was that was later, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so that gives us that gives us your cultural 
grounding. Uh, fast forward a bit now. We're in the 1980s, presumably, and you've got your community, your herbal community, beginning to identify itself. What was what, what were the key events in that? Because it, sure. it's it's a, it's, a, it's one of the most pr- prominent organisations we have in the herbal world. Thank you. That's a very kind of you. Uh, this just to be clear, we're, we're recording this in August of. 2023 and right now we're getting ready to announce here at the american botanical council that it's the 40th anniversary of the founding of herbalgram so right now herbalgram is beginning its 41st year it was the summer of 1983 when rob mccaleb a friend and colleague who was the head of research at celestial seasonings herb teas in boulder colorado he and I put together the first eight-page Herbalgram, and Herbalgram was like a play on Telegram, of course, and the idea was to communicate to members of the newly formed American Herbal Products Association, of which he and I were founding board members, and the newly founded Herb Research Foundation, of which he and I started. He was the president. I was vice president. And Herbalgram became this medium of information for people in industry, academia, uh, science, uh, health professionals, whoever was part of our network, even some people in the U.S. government. And remember, for those people who are younger, we didn't have internet, we didn't have email, we didn't even have fax machines back then. So if you wanted to communicate to somebody other than picking up the phone and calling them, you printed something and you mailed it in this, what do we call now, snail mail through the U.S. mails. And a week or two later, people got it in the mail and they read it on an eight-page newsletter. So, I for five years, I, I published Herbalgram for the American Herbal Products Association, which has just celebrated its 40th year last year, and of which I was a, a founding board member. And the Herb Research Foundation. And then after five years, I had a vision for Herbalgram as this newsletter that was up to 24 pages at that point. I had this vision of trying to make it like a Scientific American or National Geographic kind of publication. So I started the nonprofit American Botanical Council along with uh, Dr. James A. Duke at the United States Department of Agriculture, who was the leading medicinal plant expert in the United States government a friend and colleague, the late Dr. James A. Duke, and the late Professor Norman R. Farnsworth, who was considered by many to be one of the world's leading pharmacognosy professors. And most of us know that pharmacognosy is the scientific discipline of studying drugs of natural origin, usually from plants, although they could be from animals as well. And we started ABC. He, he, and- got, the, he got the Nixon job. Yeah. He uh, got, Farnsworth got the Nixon job, didn't he, of uh, the, getting the cancer uh, thing. So I remember those uh, early articles in Lloydia where he reviewed all these uh, uh, herbal remedies around the world that were associated with tumor reduction. Well, originally, that was Jonathan Hartwell, if you'll remember. It was Jonathan Hartwell, who I believe may have been a botanist. I'm not sure what his scientific training was, but he published in Lloydia a series of articles Hartwell did, surveying the ethnobotanical historical uses of various plants and cultures around the world that had some reported or reputed anti-tumor activity, either topically and or internally, 
and that became the the body or the, or the corpus of medicinal plants that the National Cancer Institute has started systematically making extracts out of to looking for cytotoxic activity when, in the search for new anti-cancer drugs from plants. That was Hartwell, and Farnsworth came in during that era and that process, but focused mainly on anti-fertility plants uh, and er- plants with fertility-related aspects uh, based on, um, I believe, research and funding from the World Health Organization because they were looking for natural plant-based anti-fertility activity. So you had the academic heavyweights. So Varro Tyler came in, didn't he, at that point or soon after? Professor Tyler, excuse me, came in almost like the day or the week after he retired as being executive vice president of, of academic affairs at Purdue University. He yep. was uh, that and provost, and after having been dean of the School of Pharmacy for 20 years and the senior author of five or six, um, uh, probably five ish editions of the leading pharmacognosy textbook used in 70 some odd colleges of pharmacy in the United States. So, Professor Tyler was a giant in the area of pharmacy, pharmacognosy education. So, I was very grateful to have these three. Uh, white-haired or silver-haired gentleman uh, back up, back me up as being the initial board and founder, founding energy for the American Botanical Council, because that opened a lot of doors for us and gave us almost instant overnight credibility when we first started ABC in 1998. So, uh, 1998, 19. 90- Eight, 1988 was it? 88. 88. Because the next thing on the horizon in my memory uh, historically was Deshay, which was uh, really did transform uh, your life there. Right. That's the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994. So that's six years after the founding of ABC. And ABC, I won't, will not say was instrumental in Deshay because that would be inaccurate and inappropriate. Uh, we did not, we were not a lobby group. We were not lobbying. We were advoc- advocating for a rational assessment of the safety and efficacy of herbs and medicinal plant products and their appropriate role in self-care and eventually into clinical health care. But we did not lobby for legislation. People could use our publications for supporting or opposing specific legislation. I was involved uh, significantly in the conversations that preceded uh, the passage of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, but I was not out there advocating directly for it because I was, as a director of a tax-exempt nonprofit organization, uh, we did not want it to be seen as um, anything but we were. We wanted to be seen as an independent rational, science-based research and education organization. But people use our material uh, proactively in advocating for the passage of that um, landmark legislation, which basically gave herbal uh, products and herbal materials uh, a safe harbor from a regulatory point of view. And we published a number of articles that were significant at the time showing the deficiencies and the... the, um, in some cases, the hypocrisy or ridiculousness of some of the Food and Drug Administration's positions with respect to herbs at that time. And I say that 
with a 30-year or 35-year context here, with no disrespect to the Food and Drug Administration, but at that time, they did not have a rational approach or understanding of where herbs were, what they were, and, what, and how they fit into, uh, how to get them to fit into uh, people's lives in a way that allowed them access and, uh, which, and, and proper education. Uh, they wanted to make herbs into drugs, or, and regulate them as drugs, which was a, no, uh, a non-starter for us because that would have required millions of dollars of safety and efficacy testing for something that was not patentable, things that were not patentable, and basically uh, excluded drugs, uh, herbals as, as unapproved drugs, uh, mainly, mainly would have banned them and made them unavailable. So uh, herbs became dietary supplements, which is a category of food from a regulatory point of view, not a category of drugs. See, for over here, we had a completely different world, as you know, because we had herbal medicines and still have herbal medicines, and that was our default position. Uh, and the idea of herbs as foods was seen by many in our sector to be a, 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 a cop-out from the higher ground that we were aspiring to, which was that they were therapeutic uh, goods, as the Australians would call them. Uh, so we were t t totally uh, um, amazed by the speed of developments over in the U.S. Uh, and it must have been transformative for you, that legislation. It was, but just as a, just a, as a comment, we didn't have the benefit of the herbalist charter, mm. no, you know, which basically yeah. Yeah. incorporated into your common law yeah. the right of people to have access to herbal medicines yes indeed indeed so yeah and that was like 1540 something 1543 15, or something 15, like that? 1533 i think yeah okay sorry uh forgive 30, me or maybe forgive 35. this yank for being no no i'm i'm, I'm scraping okay, well, my brain at the moment but it's in that era yes all right i'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> I'll 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 be great. I'll be satisfied with being eight or ten years off, for, you know, as 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 a, a Texan, based on my limited British history. Well, that's uh, the, it, it's it's interesting what what comes across the the Atlantic, doesn't it? What what you what you take over from the various European sources that were the main source of legislation at that time. But it was it turned out very differently, and uh, our paths for a while diverged, didn't they? Because you were um, uh, taken up with this new status of dietary supplements, whereas we have still been fighting a different sort of corner. But it, it, we, we agreed on one thing, that we needed more better standards, um, more research, uh, more education. We needed to bring these uh, herbs into a, into a polite conversation, and that's where I think you made so much progress. I mean, Herbalgram for us was was a sort of professional journal uh, because you were producing so much content that was relevant to us over here. Uh, so we were always very grateful for that. Um, and I assume what well, after Dichay. You, you're, you're, the size of the industry that potentially supported you sort of grew by topsy, didn't it? Um, the Shea opened things up because they basically gave herbal uh, products a safe, what they call safe harbor from a regulatory point of view as dietary supplements. So companies could invest in producing uh, herbal products, marketing herbal products without being concerned about 
misregulation as unapproved drugs. And uh, so it opened up the floodgates, so to speak, uh, with, and some people, and even myself sometimes, are concerned about the relatively low barrier to entry or bar to entry yeah. to get into the herbal business because people can actually yeah. get into the business very easily, sometimes without even knowing much about sourcing, yeah. quality control, et cetera. Yeah. And we've seen situations where that has not always been in the, in the consumer's which, which, best. Which, which we'll come back to, I think, in this conversation because uh, that has led you to these new initiatives that we're going to talk about. And I'm just uh, still interested in the Deshaies event because, you know, the FDA was was sort of ha got socked by that, didn't they? They, as you said, they didn't like it and they were put on the defensive because they had to then be in the uh, position of having to prove uh, cause rather than the supplier. Well, there was a, there were several issues with that. Uh, first of all, as many people like to point out, by the way, next year, 2024, will be the 30th anniversary of the passage of Deshay. So there's going to be a lot of that kind of retrospective mm -hmm. analysis and historical conversations and probably articles and trade publications as well coming up in the next year as we hit this 30th anniversary, just as an FYI. So that's a yeah. On the surf, on the horizon coming up, we're going to see more conversation. Uh, FDA misregulated herbs in several ways. One is they called them unsafe food additives, and aside from already I already mentioned, uh, unapproved drugs. So, putting the drugs aside for a moment, issue this drug issue. And yes, yes, herbs are in some cases regulated as drugs in many countries around the world. We acknowledge that. Of course, we also acknowledge the fact that the word drug itself comes from an herbal base. So the the, yes. the whole point behind the word drug is dried plant and drug and drought and all those other Drogan, uh, yes. uh, yeah. that, that, that come from the drogan and drug. And, you know, many pharmacists and physicians still don't understand that, you know, that it all comes from dried plants at one point. But aside from the fact that herbs are regulated as, as a form of medicines in different parts of the world, one of the ways FDA tried to regulate herbs and in some cases misregulate them uh, or over-regulate them as unsafe food additives because the Congress had given FDA the authority to regulate, in most cases, synthetic chemical or as natural chemical additives to foods based on a 1958 amendment to the Food and Drug Law. And unless something could be proven safe a priori, they were not allowed to be added to food. So the FDA was saying these herbs are un unapproved food additives. And the classic case in this was the one about it's called the Traco case. Traco was a company that was importing, importing uh, black currant seed oil, which, like uh, evening primrose oil, had some, um, uh, I mean, gamma linoleic acid and yes. some of these uh, essential fatty acids that were necessary for certain biological processes that you don't get, that you don't generate uh, endogenously. And FDA, instead of going after 50 or 60 or 100 companies selling uh, what they thought was an unapproved food additive and, and regulating these companies and going after them, they decided to go to the source and cut it off at the source and go back to the company that was actually bringing in the barrels, two drums of uh, black currant seed oil. And in the court case, uh, FDA argued they acknowledged that if you took black currant seed oil and poured it from a bottle into a spoon and took the spoon and took it orally, that that's a food. FDA acknowledged that in court. However, FDA's position was if you took that same oil that you could take in a spoon as a food and put it into a soft gelatin capsule, these little golden football type capsules, then that became 
a basically an unsafe food additive. And in the in the in the appeals court, when the, when the industry company appealed this, or the FDA appealed, I think, or I forgot who appealed. Uh, the judge said this is an Alice in Wonderland approach, referring to the FDA's idea that taking a food and putting it in a capsule and putting it in like a drug delivery system, it makes it an unsafe food additive or a drug. And the and the, the court called it an Alice in Wonderland approach. And when that information was, was revealed in Congress, along with other kinds of issues in some hearings that the sen- late Senator uh, Kennedy and Senator Hatch held, uh, that gave rise to some of the Deshay passage, uh, that was one of the key pieces of information that got a lot of people who, mm. legislators, to recognize that this doesn't make any sense the way things, that the, at the old yeah. status quo, that they needed something new to help regulate because millions of people were using these products and millions more wanted to use them appropriately. And that was one of the examples that just showed how how uh, absurd the whole situation was. Yeah, Alice in Wonderland approach, according to the yeah. judge. Well, it, it so uh, we we've seen the benefits to the sector on opening up and regulating, as you say, providing a safe harbor for herbal products under dietary supplements. Uh, one of the things that we n- felt a little bit over here because we saw some of the downdraft of that in terms of the increase in imports, uh, cheap imports uh, into Europe from dietary supplement manufacturers who at that time were slightly looser in their adherence to quality standards and so on. That We thought uh, we, when we were trying to create... Um, uh, uh, get a quality standard established here. There was this slight disjunct, but we've seen what you've done uh, at the ABC and yourself personally in picking up the industry by its bootstraps. And rather than having quality standards imposed uh, by others like the FDA, you've actually generated these internally with. BAPP, which you're going to tell me about more in a moment, and other uh, initiatives. And that's, you know, to be able to get a sector to work in against some of its own narrow commercial interests is a really impressive feat. And I'd like you to share how you got there. How did you get the sector to back you in? Well, tell tell us what BAPP is first. Yeah, what? Right. First of all, BAPP stands for the Botanical Adulterants Prevention Program. It's an anti-adulteration and anti-fraud program uh, generated by the American Botanical Council, the non- a non-profit herb- uh, American Herbal Pharmacopeia, and the National Center for Natural Products Research, which is an FDA-funded research center at the University of Mississippi. So there's the three of us as partners. We're the founders of the and the directors of this um, non-profit consortium, and we've had over 200 companies, laboratories, research centers, trade associations, uh, professional societies in the U.S. and internationally that have either endorsed this and or are financially supporting it. Uh, let's remember that ABC, when I started ABC, the whole p- point of ABC was to have a independent, science-based research and education organization that cut through a lot of the misinformation or disinformation that was we often found 
in the herbal literature uh, and in the herbal mo movement. This is, this is something that we, we were concerned about. So we've always taken the scientific approach, but at the same time, always acknowledging and honoring the rich tradition of history and ethnobotany, uh, that the traditional use of, botanical, of botanicals as medicines, as foods, as colors, as fragrances, all the different ways that people interact with plants ethnobotanically. We focus on medicinal, of course. So we go to the people whom we believe to be and hope to be the responsible elements of the herbal industry. We have members that are not industry, by the way. We're not an industry association. We are funded in part by industry. We're very grateful for that. But we have members that are scientists, researchers, academics, educators, uh, health professionals of all stripes, uh, etc. Government agencies, libraries, universities, laboratories in the United States and in 80 countries around the world. We're basically an independent, non uh, international nonprofit. And if it were, if I were starting ABC today instead of 35 years ago, I may not call it the American Botanical Council. I may want to call it the International Botanical Council or some other name. But by the way, the, the name ABC, I figured the name for this new organization we want to start should be, the acronym should be as easy to remember as ABC. And I'm thinking, okay, ABC, what American Botanical Commission, Committee, Consortium, Council. So that's how we came up with the name ABC. It was basically from the acronym, by the way, as a little anecdote, <laughs> that acronyms should be easy to remember. People still say, hey, Mark, how are things at the American Botanical Society? And I have to ask them, <laughs> what is it about ABC that you don't understand? But I don't want to be snarky or anything. And by the way, I, I wear the shirt that has our logo on it and on covers of our magazine, Herbalgram, and my dear mentor, Jim Duke, uh, on the cover of Herbalgram here, right over my heart. So this is like one of my favorite shirts, and it's a unique shirt because there's no other shirt like it except the other one in my closet that's made from the same bolt of cloth, um, just as an anecdote there. So a ABC tries to deal with what we consider to be responsible elements of the community. Uh, especially the ind industry people. And I say responsible elements because very often we talk about the industry as if it's this monolithic and homogeneous uh, thing, and it's not. It's fractionated, it's, it's very uh, multi-leveled, and it includes a lot of people who are really good stewards of their businesses, who care about the quality of the of the ingredients going into their products. They care about how the products are processed and made. They care about how they're communicating to their customers in a responsible and legitimate manner. And they care about the customers and the end user's experience, whether that person's putting the product in their mouth through a tea, a capsule, tablet, extract, or whatever, or on their skin as, a, as an unguent or a salve or whatever. There's a lot of good people out there with really good companies that have excellent quality and are playing by the rules and they're helping to make the rules. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's people out there who don't really play by the rules, who are just looking for ways to make a fast dollar and they really don't care about some of the quality of the ingredients. They're looking, they're, unfortunately, the joke is, and it's not a joke, that price is one of the biggest, if not one of the most compelling specifications in the herb industry and it's true in other industries as well i'm sure 
Uh, price should not be the primary <laughs> specification. The quality based on identity and then the relative purity, etc., as we know. So we set up this organization, this, this, this consortium 13 years ago uh, called the Botanical Adulterants Prevention Program uh, with ABC, AHP, and the University of Mississippi, as I just mentioned, as a way to research and educate the responsible elements of the herb industry and anybody else who's interested in learning about what types of adulteration and fraud are being detected based on published literature in the United States and worldwide. And the first publication that we've done in 2011 was a really interesting article by the late, great Stephen Foster, who was a botanist, author, and renowned photographer, called A Brief History of the Adulteration of Herbs, Spices, and Botanical Drugs. This article is free access on the ABC website at herbalgram.org. And this article really gives an excellent view of the history of the herbal movement in the last 2,000 years, going back to Greco-Roman times, documenting different cases of adulteration and fraud. And the point of our publishing this as our first article, this extensively peer-reviewed historical survey, was to show people that this problem of adulteration and fraud is not something that is specific to the modern herb or dietary supplement or international medicinal plant community. It's something that is historic. It's part of society and culture. It goes back thousands of years because people have cheated. And it's true in the food business, the wine business, the olive oil business, the pharmaceutical industry, and all over. People cheat, unfortunately. And we provide resources to responsible elements of the community that they can use to protect themselves from being victimized by the unscrupulous sellers of fraudulent material. So we help companies. We've published now 82 extensively peer-reviewed documents that are totally free access on our website at the American Botanical Council at herbalgram.org on the BAP resource page. Anybody can pull this stuff down if they just want to register at herbalgram.org and it's free access made possible by the generous donations of the responsible elements of the community that support this program. And that's the magic that I was alluding to. And I remember that article by Steve. Uh, it was a really important one. And, and you know, I, I often use as an example of how easy it is to adulterate the, the concept of wetting. You know, if you're selling dried herbs, Drogon, uh, by weight, uh, all you need to do is not dry it 100%, and you've got one or two or 3% water in there. You, you know, you can double your weight and your profits overnight, but of course you've created a mold-encouraging um, uh, product straight away. Simple ways in which you can uh, play the system to the to the detriment of the end consumer so yeah it's it's i mean we, we're in awe of what you've done thank you and by the way another way people did that is they used to hand, add sand remember yes. back in the day yeah. they used yeah. to add sand you know to the cinnamon powder or whatever the turmeric powder and that's why in the first century of the common era dioscorides the great greek herbalist uh developed uh, the, the ash test as a way to do quality control back same. in the days before. <laughs> yeah. Because it yeah, didn't so burn. It was still left so over. It, 
it's as old as humanity, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, but it's, it it's exactly this sort of thing because, you know, I mean, as we know, as you know very well, the FDA have started to come in with food uh, GMPs and so on in, in these latter years uh, as an external regulator of the system. Um, but it, by doing this, you've uh, really shown that bootstrapping is still, you know, the, the, the honourable way through. And, and uh, you, you've got a new project out there now, isn't it, uh, about uh, the, um, the, 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 um, the defective goods? We recognize that sometimes things can be adulterated, which means that people have either labeled A as B or B as A, so things are mislabeled and they're misrepresented, and it's concealed, so the adulterator knows, but the buyer doesn't know. The seller knows that there's something wrong with this stuff, but the buyer doesn't know it. Or something has been diluted, but the dilution is not con- is is not is concealed. It's not revealed. Or something is spiked with some other chemical compound, so that'll trick a certain chemical test for identity. There's different ways that adulterators will adulterate, and part of the definition of adulteration is. It's uh, it's concealed. It's made. It's done for the economic benefit of the seller, to the economic detriment of the buyer, and occasionally, perhaps the the health detriment of the buyer as well. Because sometimes there can be a safety problem. Although fortunately, in most of the wor- work that we've done so far with eighty two publications peer reviewed, we found very few safety related concerns that are deal with toxicology. Uh, the real the public health issue might be that the product doesn't work as intended or as work as the as the ex, as expected, and that becomes a health issue, but not necessarily a safety issue per se. But the, the problem is that sometimes the way the adulteration occurs, and this can also can come with uh, contamination by accident, uh, that these products can these ingredients cannot always be. Uh, adequately reconditioned. There's ways sometimes that you can recondition a product that's out of specifications. A company sells tells their supplier, we want a certain powder and we need this powder to be a certain size for the mesh. And the company, the supplier sends a powder and it's the the particle size is too big. Well, it's, it's not a problem to send it to another milling company or somebody to lawfully change that powder to a finer powder so that the, it meets the manufacturer's specifications. This happens all the time, or the alfalfa is not green enough, and they can send it back to the manufa- the supplier and say, well, we need the greener stuff, and there's nothing, you know, it's a different batch or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. It can, things can be uh, lawfully remediated, lawfully reconditioned, but sometimes an adulteration or a contamination can, can occur by accident, or whatever, by design, if it's adulteration, where the defect cannot be legally removed. It cannot be taken out of the material. If something was, red dye was added to a St. John's wort extract to kind of create a false impression that it is St. John's wort extract uh, based on certain chemical testing. That can't be changed. And the green, that red dye is going to stay in there. In a situation like that, uh, companies should not send that back to the supplier for credit or for a reshipment, but should, based on this standard operating procedure that we put together uh, for industry, for voluntary use by uh, responsible members of the industry, uh, the industry, uh, the buyer, should have it destroyed or sent to a landfill or uh, sent to an incinerator by a qualified, certified third party 
uh, instead of sending it back to the supplier who should not have sent it in the first place, should not have shipped it, and uh, let's get that stuff out of the supply chain. In other words, let's give the people and the responsible players in the community who qualify usually adequately qualify their supplier so they don't usually have this problem it doesn't happen frequently but it might happen and it can happen and it has happened so that we're trying to give more resources for uh, responsible players to be able to take control of the supply chain and remove something that we're deeming to be irreparably defective. If something is irreparably defective, either because it's adulterated intentionally or accidentally contaminated, then it should be removed from the supply chain. At the end of the day, it's the consumer that benefits from this. Yeah. And for many of us, you know, that's a a sort of wake-up call because you know i think many of our industry think that all, all is roses and you know because it's natural it's safe and we're all good guys uh, but to actually call this out and to invite a solution in the way that you have is very positive i wanted to sort of end this because you know we don't want to leave people with the idea that that uh, you know we we have to act as policemen here uh, but to look at the positive i mean we've gone through all sorts of transformations in the herbal sector. And, you know, we, we can afford to look back and to look forward on the basis of our experience. Um, what, you know, where do you see in the US particularly, where do you see the herbal sector moving? Is there new ch- uh, changes afoot? Do you see any threats that uh, we should be mobilizing ourselves for? New opportunities? Well, there's a lot of opportunity in the herbal community. There's a lot of new things happening. I mean, even though this we're dealing with an old uh, value proposition here called, you know, herbal medicines, and they've been around for centuries and millennia, there's lots of new research happening in, in various fields. There's lots of new phytomedicinal preparations that are being made. And the advent of fungi, which is admittedly a different biological kingdom or kingdom in the evolutionary biologist's preferred term, that, that, that's exploding right now. And there's an increased consumer interest in and industry interest and research interest in the whole area of mushrooms and mycelia and uh, the whole fungal value proposition. So this is one of the biggest areas of growth that we're going to see in probably the next five years or so, both in the drug side with the research dollars going into psilocybin research, but also on the functional mushroom and mycelium side with more and more uh, research coming out on the benefits uh, for a variety of purposes, immunological, et cetera, uh, from fungi. Now, in Chinese traditional medicine, as you know, fungi are considered part of herbal medicine. And, you know, from a biology point of view, they're separate from plants. But in the herbal community, they're kind of combined. So from a functional perspective, we treat them as if so they were herbs, but they're yeah. scientifically not. And well, that that's I, I, huge right now, and it's getting yeah. bigger. I was sort of smiling because the next outing of the Mills and Bone Academy is on fungal. We, where Mills and Bone go moldy is our next uh, is our next outing. So very good plug there, Mark. Thank you. Oh, I was prescient. Who knew? But also, if I may, uh, before we finish, I want to do a shout out to 
another program and another area of, 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 of great interest in and commitment that ABC has, beside a lot of the research and educational work we do with the areas of 9,000 herb clips, summaries of clinical trials and research, et cetera. And that's the Sustainable Herbs Program. Uh, as we're talking this summer uh, with the, the world heating up and it's the whole idea of global warming and the climate crisis being you know, increasingly evident, uh, even to those people who may have been naysayers or previously, uh, the issue of where are we going to be getting our herbs and how are they being produced and who are the people that are producing these herbs at source and processing them along the different va the value uh, uh, network. And we prefer to use the term value network instead of supply chain because it implies more about uh, uh, recognition of the human value. And it's also a network because it's not just a linear uh, issue. So I want to do a shout out to the uh, uh, Su Sustainable Herbs Program, which is a wonderful program that we've been doing here at the at the American Botanical Council for five years now, and uh, and Ann Armbrecht uh, is the director of that. She's doing a terrific job, and it's an educational event that's free access. Uh, the website is free access on the herbalgram.org website. You can uh, go to Sustainable Herbs Program. I think we have over fifty videos and thirty nine or forty. Uh, free access uh, uh, webinars and all kinds of uh, an incredible toolkit. The 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 uh, Sustainable Herbs Program, um, Sustainable and Regenerative Practices Toolkit 2.0 has just been released by ABC uh, this spring, this past spring. Well, Mark, that was really as a, a lightning tour of our history together. And I, as you start, I was reminding myself that I was also almost 50 years in practice, so we're sort of contemporary. And it's really nice to catch up with our past a little bit on this. And again, thank you so much for sharing your own work uh, over those years. Uh, it is an inspiration for us. We are still looking for new initiatives, leadership, um, uh, ways in which we can pick up our sector uh, and, and and make something more of it. Uh, so you are a, a, a guiding light for us, and we're really grateful that you shared your time with us in this session. Simon, there's so much to share in so little time. So thank you for making some time to include me again in your uh, series. I'm very grateful and honored and appreciative. And uh, thank you also for being so supportive of you know, the herbal medicine agenda in the UK and throughout the English-speaking world and for being such a great member of the ABC Advisory Board for all this 20 years or whatever it is that you've been involved with us. So deeply grateful to you, sir. Well, thank you again, Mark, and uh, we'll look forward to our future meetings. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining.